Well, morning, everybody. Thanks for rising extra early and gathering here. Welcome to everyone joining us online. I suspect our online crowd might be a little more pajama-based and enjoying the morning there. But open up your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1. We're in this series through the Lenten season that we've entitled, Who Am I? We're going on a journey, to, journey of identity formation, and we took our first step last week under this banner that we talked about the core of our identity. The reality is it's received from beyond us, received from heaven, from God, not created or initiated by us. And we talked about some of the challenges that come and maybe asking the question when we look at our culture today, we look at the landscape of what's happening in our land, and we say, maybe the trajectory of mental illness and depression and anxiety and exhaustion and all those things are like up and to the right, off the charts for the generation. Could it be tied that we are trying to create and extract something from earth? We're trying to initiate something from inside of us that at its core is to be the posture of received from beyond us. And Kaylin, my ninth grader, said, hey, dad, in the, uh, I guess in the high school circles, they, were, they had a screenshot of this study that was done recently, and it was circulating all around the high school this week. Something, uh, she sent it to me, and the essence of the study was that today they figured out that North American high school students, the anxiety level that our North American high school students are carrying today is the equivalent of what psychiatric patients in the 1950s were admitted with. And so you have a question now, and I appreciate all of you who serve in the school system and all of you who are doing tremendous leadership in our school system. And I know you're busting your tails to try to get at the core of what's going on. I think there would be some wisdom in at least asking the question, why is it that we've come to a place where we have to insert mental health days and mental health weeks? We ought to at least ask, what is contributing to that? And I think our series, I think, is it could be at least a part of the conversation. Could it be that we're pressuring a generation to grow up and extract something from inside of them that at the core of how God's made them is to be received from beyond them? And so we want to build off of that today in Ephesians 1. Pull out your bulletin notes if you haven't done so already. And we're going to look at this step today. I said we're going to go on a, a journey through the whole series the road is labeled, Who Am I? Jesus is our guide. And the second step on the journey today, I've labeled this way, to see yourself as God sees you in Jesus. To see ourselves as God sees us in Jesus. Ephesians 1, follow along with me here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, that introduction alone should cause us to take a step back and say, are you kidding me? We'll come back to that, why it's so significant, who's the author of these words, but just stay with me now for a moment. So Paul's authoring it to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a gathering of believers, the church in Ephesus, the history on the church in Ephesus, Acts 19, if you want to read it, like how did the believers get going there? And now he's writing them a letter to encourage them in their young faith. And notice how he starts, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him 
before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Catch this. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And he's just getting started. If you know your Bible well at all, he goes on for three full chapters. It's like something was uncorked inside of Paul. He couldn't contain it anymore. Grammatically, the first 14 verses of the letter is one run-on sentence. Not great grammar for you English majors, but amazing and breathtaking theology. He can't contain this reality of what is true about him now, being adopted and engrafted and placed in Christ. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're just going to peel back a, fl- a few layers. And I know I'm going to stretch us a little bit. I even picked the Sunday when we're here an hour earlier to say we're going to take a deep dive. I promise we'll come up for some air, okay? Just let me nerd out a little bit on you for a bit, but stay with me. You're kind of stuck with me anyway. So we're going to take a deep dive. We'll come up for some air because here's what we're going to talk about. I think it's a really important theological pillar for our spiritual growth. It is this doctrine that Paul refers to 150 plus times in his letters. You saw it there in verse 9 when he used that little phrase, in Christo, in Christ. Theologically, it means incorporation or union with Jesus. Said plainly, here's what it means to be in Christ. The things that are true about Jesus are true about you. The things that are true about Jesus are true true about you. Now listen to what N.T. Wright says here. When Paul speaks to us as being in Christ, the center of what he means is that the king represents his people so that what happens to him happens to them. And what is true of him is true of them. Stay with me now. Think of David, this amazing example that N.T. Wright brings up. Think of David fighting Goliath, 1 Samuel 17. David was representing Israel. He had already been anointed as king, but it was long after his victory before the people realized that he was the one to lead Israel into God's future. So it is with us. Jesus has won the decisive victory over the oldest and darkest enemy of all. And if we are in him, in the king, in Christ, then we shall discover step by step what that means. Now, do you, do you follow his, his, his reasoning there? Do you see? So if 1 Samuel 17, David goes into the valley of Elah, and the way the battle was fought is Goliath was the Philistine representative to come into the valley. David was the Israelite representative to come into the valley. And their battle, the winner of their individual fight, the other side was declared completely defeated, victorious. You follow this? So because David representing Israel, if David lost in the valley of Elah, 
hundreds and thousands of Israelite lives would have been lost. The Philistines would have marched right down into Jerusalem, wiping out all of the villages from Valley of Elah all the way into Jerusalem, wiping them out. But do you see N.T. Wright's bring up say, but because David representing Israel, his victory became all of Israel's victory. David's freedom when he decapitated Goliath became all of Israel's freedom. And you follow the connection now? So in Jesus, when he goes to the cross and he rises from the grave, then his victory becomes our victory in Christo. And his freedom becomes our freedom. And his kingdom becomes our kingdom. That's what it means to be in Christ, to be incorporated, to have union with him. And can you feel kind of the weight and the implications of this? I, I wrote in my notes, and I think I put these sentences in your notes, what a, can you feel the, the weight of this for like practical everyday living? What if we stopped defining ourselves by what we did wrong and started defining ourselves what Christ has done right? How different would our lives be? Or pressed a little further, what if we stopped defining ourselves by the things done to us or done to our, by ourselves and started defining ourselves by what Christ has done for us? Do you see that? So there's a, there's a shifting now. Do you begin to see yourself as incorporated, as adopted, as brought into what Ephesians 1, 1 through 10 is saying? When you look at verse 3, it's like you're actually supposed to see yourself as possessing Every spiritual blessing in Christ. I looked at that many times. You go, like, Lord, every? Not like most or all, like every? Can you just let your mind go to every spiritual blessing that Jesus produced when he conquered sin and death and he rose from the grave and he ascended and he's reigning and ruling in glory? Are you kidding me? You are incorporated into that level of victory. Or verse 4, you're chosen, holy, blameless, you're predestined, you're adopted. Verse 5, Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 7, you're redeemed, forgiven, and you're covered with the riches of God's grace. All of these things are true about you if you're here today as a follower of Jesus. And He just keeps going on and on. This is just the first paragraph. If you just want to camp out in Ephesians 1 to 3, it's just paragraph after paragraph of what is true about Christ is true about you. This is who you are. And we will spend the rest of our lives now, hear this, becoming in our practical everyday character who we already are in identity. That's why I entitled this morning, Becoming Who You Already Are. Now, right now, so we'll come up for a little air here. So right now, there's probably a little tension should be inside of us going on when we look at Ephesians 1 and you go, man, Paul says I'm holy and blameless. And you go, huh. You may say, I, you don't feel very holy and blameless. You go, well, you say, well, I was up late night devouring a whole bunch of porn last night. And you go, don't feel very holy on that. Or you had a business transaction this week, and you go, ah, I kind of shaved the corners on a business transaction. Don't feel very blameless on that. Or you said some things, or you know, your mouth got out of hand, or your thumbs got out of hand. You sent some things that you look back on and go, I don't think that was to the praise of his glory. Do you feel the tension? Like, it's declared, this is true of you. It's true about Jesus. It's true of you. Here's the tension. This is that reality of the kingdom that there is this now and not yet. There is this now and not yet living in the kingdom. There are some things that are true about you now 
that have yet to be fully experienced, the not yet of the fully experienced. Even Jesus himself, there are things true about Jesus' kingdom on earth now, but not yet his full reign and rule, right? Because he's going to return again. We're living in the now and the not yet. Because Jesus said in Acts 1, the same way I left, I will return someday. That current is not eternal. The way this world is running right now is not the way it's always going to run. How? That's the, the not yet. Christ's kingdom has come. He has come to the earth. There is an ability to experience his reign and rule now, but not fully yet. Are you tracking with me? It's, the, it's this tension between the now and the... You are declared holy in Christo, but then there are times in which you go, I just didn't act very holy at all. That's real life. It's the now and the not yet journey. So I thought about it from, let's think about it from a family unit for a minute. So I brought back the picture I showed a few weeks ago, Kendra and I's wedding day. Go ahead and put it up there for us, V. So this is a picture, uh, June 6, 1992. No mocking and comments about the mop on top for me. Just leave it alone for a moment. Just focus on June 6, 1992, our wedding day. Kendra was 22, I was 23. Translated, clueless, right? And so on that day when Pastor Andy Winters, in that service at Community Heights Alliance Church in Newton, Iowa, when he pronounced Kendra and I husband and wife that afternoon, how much did I really know about being a husband? Hmm? Kendra, how much did I really know about being a husband? <laughs> Nothing. I mean, nah, I didn't know anything about being a husband. Stay with me here, though. But from June 6, 1992, from that moment, I was declared Kendra's spouse. I have been a husband since that day. I, my status as Kendra's husband hasn't changed. Now, I'd be a good husband or a bad husband. It took me a good decade to even get to, like, moderate, you know? But you follow me? Like, my status, though, as her husband hasn't changed, but I'll spend the rest of my life practically becoming who I already am. I'm going to become, I'm going to live up, Ephesians 4, Paul says it this way, you live up to the calling that you've already received. June 6, 1992, I was called, I was identified as a husband. I will spend the rest of my life living up to that calling, becoming who I already am. How about from a parenting standpoint? This is a pre-approved picture of the girls from younger years. You, you know, you have to do that, right, Dad? So... Here's the pre-approved picture from younger years, right? Kendra got to do some digging on old photos, and the girl said, okay, Dad, this is okay one right here. So obviously a girl's much younger back then. Lily was born September 5th, 2000. Kaylin, December 2004. So you got September 2000, December 2004. I became a dad. Like September 5th of 2000. How much did I know on that day about being a father? Huh? How much? Not nothing. I mean, a little bit. Come on, give me. Let's yell out over here, zero. I'm like, come on, like, maybe a little bit, but not much. Right? I remember, I remember that day we were at St. Vincent Family Life Center, and I remember they'd given us the release date, and, and you know, the nurse comes down to the car and, like, make sure you, like, put them in the safety seat okay. That, you know, was way more complicated than any of you could figure out, like, and then they like, they just snapped her in there and said, you're good to go. And then they just shut the door. And I thought, they let you take one of these things home? They let you take a human being home from the hospital? Like, this should be illegal. 
Like, what are we going to do? We get in the car and we drive away. And it is the slowest dad drive I've ever done. Dad, you with me? You remember this day, especially with your, the first? It may have got a little bit faster as you had a few more kids, but the first, like, I remember like pulling out of St. Vincent and I hit that first stoplight and Kendra's like, honey, you need to like pull up to the white line to stop. Like I stopped so far back from the stoplight and I was signaling so early that people were thinking, is he turning right eventually? Like, and I was in the slow lane and I was going speed limit or below. Are you with me? It was like, I called the really focused and intense dad, and they pull in the driveway and park the car and turn off the key. And I, I look at Kendra, and she looks at me, I, what do we do now? <laughs> we take her inside. Thankfully, my mom and Kendra's mom were here. They had all the wisdom, right, and knowledge, but we're sitting in the car. What do we know about being a parent at that point? Next to nothing. But hear this. From September of 2000, my status as a father has not changed. Now, you can be a good dad or a bad dad, and there's all that, but my status as a dad has been in place since the moment Lily was born. And now I'll spend the rest of my life becoming who I already am, living up to my calling to be a dad. Do you see that? Is this connecting at all? So this is how it works then in Christo. You see, in Jesus, do you follow the analogy in Ephesians 1? He says you've been adopted into God's family. This is unbelievable. All those baptisms a couple weeks ago, those of you who are baptized, dial in now. When you were under those waters and up out of those waters, do you see that visual? Like that's your, like, that's your birth, your initiate. You're like saying, you're proclaiming that I'm like a new creation in Christ. You are grafted into a new family. And then you go, man, but my week this past week, I sure don't feel like I... Welcome to the club. It's called the Church of Jesus. You're going to spend the rest of your lives becoming in character who you've already been declared to be in identity. Do you follow that? That's in Christo. Do you feel the weightedness and the groundedness of your identity here? How different is this than trying to extract an identity from the things of this earth? trying to spend your life trying to extract out of performance or possessions, right, or popularity or pleasure. You try to extract from this earth, from the here and now, that I'm not what I have, I'm not what I do, I'm not what others say about me. We have to work those muscles. I am a child of God. And now I'll spend the rest of my life practically living out, making decisions and choices. And even in our failures, what do we do when we fail? A person in Christo responds to their failure, Ephesians 1, that we know what to do with our sin. We know where to go with our brokenness. It's not that you're perfect. It's that what are you going to do in that space? Versus if you're just trying to extract your identity, for example, out of your work, it's I am what I do, and then your work is removed from you, who are you? Or it's going to be, I am what I have, and all the things that you have at the end of your life are all gone. Then who are you? You follow? So, so this, tent, but th this reality, Ephesians 1, when we begin to see ourselves as God sees us in Jesus, this is, a, this is an identity with deep roots. And so I put in my notes that your identity isn't in your past or even in your present. Hear this now. Your identity isn't in your past or even in your present your identity is rooted in your future. It's this now and not yet. It's in who you are becoming. 
because you're going to be the rest of your lives becoming in your practical everyday character who you already are in union with Christ. And so now you guys could, like, right, we just take a deep breath and say, hey, God's, look, how much of this, how much of this were we in charge of? <laughs> I don't know what the full percentage is, but I think it's way more than 50-50 on God's side of the equation on this thing, right? We're a part of it. Our lives are involved in it. We're going to get into that more in the weeks ahead. But hear this now. Ephesians 1, who's really in charge of this whole thing? Who did the adopting? Who did the predestined? Who did the saving? Who did the reconciling? Who did the forgiving? It's not on our shoulders. But man, when you try to extract an identity from this earth, it's all on you. Do you see the anxiety and the weight and the exhaustion that comes when you try to define yourself and create yourself and be whoever you want to be and you just... That's all on you. And we're not nearly as smart enough or strong enough as we think we are. And if you're in your younger years and you think you are, just keep living or get around someone who's a few decades out and they'll remind you that we're not nearly in control as we think we are. And then what? And then we're going to need this Ephesians 1 reality. We're going to need to be reminded again, right? That's not about who you've been. Or even right now, what's going on currently in your life. It's really about who you are becoming. It's your future. It's your destiny. They're the grounds of your identity. And that has a weightedness to it. In the language of Jesus in Matthew 7, that's the difference between the shifting sand of extracting it from earth and the solid and steady rock built on Christ. That's the difference. Now, I put a quote in your notes here from Mark Buchanan that, in my opinion, if I've completely lost you somewhere on this journey, come back now. If you've been out on a smoke break somewhere, come back now. And all right, Mark Buchanan's summary right here, I think one of the best paragraphs on this I've ever read. Our future, who we are becoming, where we are going, matters more than our past, where and who we have been. Our future has more power to name us and define us than our past. Stay with me here. Consummation swallows origins. Destiny, not history, is the ultimate ground of our identity. And now he lists a whole bunch of Old Testament characters. How does a prostitute named Rahab, a Moabite outsider named Ruth, an incestuous schemer named Tamar, an adulteress named Bathsheba, how do all those end up in the birth line of Jesus? Because in God's economy, the person we become, not the person we have been, is the person we truly are. Right there. I think the Lord brought someone to church or someone's listening online right now. You're here for this moment, for you to hear that last sentence. In God's economy, the person we become, not the person we have been, is the person we truly are. That's worth meditating on for the whole week right there. Some of you, just like me, battle things in our past. It's not that our past, hear this, it's not that our past is irrelevant. It's just incomplete. If you anchored your identity to stuff done to you, or stuff you've done to yourself in your past, it's not that that's irrelevant, that's a part of your story, it has to be owned, you have to look to God for healing grace. In the language of EHS, you have to go back to go forward. 
we got to do some good, deep inner work. It's not that it's irrelevant. Hear that. The past isn't irrelevant. Hear that. It's incomplete. It's not the end of the story. So when you have some really difficult chapters of your past to work through, the grounds of your identity are not there. Or some of you right now are living in some really difficult space personally. It's even not your current reality. It's not your history. It's not your current reality. It's your destiny that becomes the substance and weight and grounds of your identity. And that's where you can just take a deep breath and say, Lord, even if for 70, 80, 90 plus years, it doesn't all get sorted out in this dark and sorry world and say, what? here's what I know. One day, when I take my last breath here and I take my first breath there, it will be made right. And my identity is there. That's why the language of Ephesians 1 is what it is. That's how he sees you holy and blameless and forgiven and adopted and redeemed. He sees you all that right now incorporated into Jesus because his victory is your victory. His freedom is your freedom. His kingdom is your kingdom. Not dependent on who you are, on what you've done, or what's been done to you. All on his back, what he accomplished, look at the cross, and in a few weeks when we celebrate, stare into the empty tomb and say, there's the final word, there's checkmate, he gets the last word. And that becomes substance. Do you feel it? Do you feel the groundedness on the inside? Not the shifting sands of trying to figure out who am I and what I'm about. No, this is an identity that's received. And as it's received, right, then our eyes begin to turn, not like how I've seen myself in my past or how I even see myself in my current realities, but how I am incorporated in Christo into Jesus, and it's about who I'm becoming, the Father loves us into our full identity, and we'll spend the rest of our lives doing that. So I want to draw this together now and transition us towards the communion table by just looking at how this happened with Paul's life. It's unbelievable. The Apostle Paul stands before us this morning with this towering example. Paul would say, hey, by the way, hey, he'd be, hey, if this happened to me, it can happen to any of you. That's what Paul would say. If, if I could become adopted into God's family, then anybody can become. I think this is probably why God preserved Paul's life with such a towering example, that no one is beyond his grace. Because the backdrop of what the opening line of Ephesians 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, you know the backstory, right? So if you've got to go back to Acts 7, 8, and 9, when Paul's introduced to us, not as Paul, but as Saul. Saul of Tarsus is Paul the apostle. Saul of Tarsus, here's his commentary on his backstory, Acts 8, verse 3. Saul began to destroy the church, the followers of Jesus. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Saul was present at the first martyr in the Christian church, Stephen. And it says, the Bible says, was giving approval to his death. That's Saul. Saul's there ready to shut the Jesus train down because as a Jew, he was threatened and concerned about this growing movement called the way. And he wanted all the people who were followers of Jesus' way arrested, thrown aside, or executed. That was, that was Saul. Acts 9.1 says, it says, meanwhile, while Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. The word breathing out, it's like a word for wild beasts when they would be like snorting when they were on their prey. That's the level of like anger and level of like 
he was intent on destroying Jesus' church. This is Saul of Tarsus. Do you see like, see Saul then, I want you to kind of put yourself in Saul's shoes now. And do you see how Saul, somewhere in his earlier formative years, he adopted what Thomas Keating, that Catholic monk said, a personal emotional program Saul adopted. In the language of Paul, it would be his old self, old ways. In the language of this new series, I would call it like his false self, his false way of being. And somewhere along the way, Saul had adopted this posture, this way of being in the world, a personal emotional program that usually it's formed early on in our years, usually when we're first growing up and what we're affirmed in in our households of origin, the things that are celebrated about us. It kind of becomes our way our way of finding happiness and security and contentment and control. It's your way of kind of navigating all the uncertainties of just growing up in this world. You adopt kind of a a way of getting through it. And this is a picture. You get Saul, who had become a tremendous religious leader, and he had become so intent with his unbelievable intellect, and he was deploying it now to destroy Jesus' church. And in this picture you get, this is who he was. This would be like a picture of his past. This would be his identity before he met Christ. And I put in your notes, I found this little grid helpful. I think it was David Benner's book where I got this from, and he wrote a little book about self-discovery, and he had these questions that I put in your, in your notes as like, if you need a little template for what are the kind of handles on my false self, ask these questions. Like, where do I find myself getting defensive, overly sensitive, or touchy? That's like The more prickly of a person you are, the greater the indicator is that you're really living out of your false self, where you're prickly, where you're just kind of overly sensitive and touchy. There's something beyond that that needs to be explored and dug into. There's a reason for that, and that's like a little window into maybe where you've kind of built a certain vision of your identity around maybe some things that don't really hold in Jesus' language, shifting sand. Or second question, what qualities irritate me in others? Like... For, for me, example, for example, for me, like, I'm easily irritated by laziness in others. So what that is is an indicator that there's a big pillar in my false self around performance, accomplishment, and achievement. Because what's easy, what I'm easily irritated in is laziness in others. You see how that's like an arrow pointing to, yeah, I've probably got a little too much stock built over there and trying to like my self-worth and value and identity based on what I do in producing and performing. Or maybe for you, it's like you're easily irritated with like, like a lot of drama in someone else. There's a ton of drama going on, and you're like super annoyed by drama in that. That's usually a good little indicator and window that emotional control is probably a pillar in the false self there. That you just want to have like a little bit more emotional control there. And so, but so qualities that irritate you and others, what is it about yourself that gets defensive or sensitive or touchy? Like where are the prickly places? And then thirdly, what qualities, or thirdly, what do I tend to be compulsive about or have excessive attachments about? Like where are your compulsions in that way? So Saul's a great profile here. So Saul was compulsive about doctrinal purity. I mean, he was, an, uh, he was crazy smart. I mean, in a moment, we're going to read a passage. We just talked about his, like, old life, old self, false ways. Like, this is what he built his life on. And Paul would be built, I am what I know. Like, Paul's intellect was off the charts. And so, doctrinal purity. And see, there had been unhealthy attachment there, and now it's being deployed in a very unhealthy way to destroy people. He's the classic profile of a religious bully, like Saul. He's a religious bully. And so, that's where it's kind of gotten off 
uh, the rails that way. And so now we're going to, so that's, I just want to give you like, so this is Saul of Tarsus, his backdrop, his profile, his old self, his false self, his old ways, how he kind of built and found his way in this world. It would be called, this is kind of Saul's way of being in the world, his personal emotional program. That's Saul. And now he's on the road to Damascus just being Saul. He's just waking up, living as Saul. I'm going to go destroy a bunch more Christians in Damascus. That's where he's headed. And then we read this in Acts chapter 9. This is where you see this story. It's an amazing story. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around. Notice a light from where? From heaven. Do you see the connection from Jesus' baptism last week in Matthew 3? Where did the voice come over Jesus' baptism? The voice from heaven. This is my son. Now, Paul, Saul, on the road to Damascus, a light comes from beyond him, right? Saul spent all these years, in the first portion of his life, all these years building his life from the grounds of this earth. And now a voice, all right, a light from heaven comes from beyond him. And now the trajectory is going to change. By the way, suddenly is an awesome word in there too. Isn't it great when the Lord does that? And some of you are in a place where you just need the Lord to suddenly do something. He can do it. He can do it. And this is another great example. A light from heaven flashed around him. What? He fell, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And if you have a words in red Bible, that's Jesus speaking there. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Ha! You think his identity is shifting there a little bit? Right? Right? It's like, wait a minute. I, he built his whole life to shut the Jesus train down, and now he's got that very Jesus appearing to him from a voice from heaven saying, I've got something for you to do. This is Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. This is Saul the church persecutor. He now becomes Paul the church builder. This is Saul whose name means um, greater one becomes Paul which means little one. And this is now the Apostle Paul who authors 13 of the 27 New Testament books. This is that guy. And he stands before you and me as a towering example, says, hey, if I can be incorporated into Jesus, then so can you. If Jesus' victory can capture my victory, then it could be for you. If Jesus' freedom can purchase my freedom, then so it can be for you. That's why Paul spent so much of his letters talking about this doctrine of incorporation and union, saying it's all about being in Christ. Because do you see, his whole life before the Damascus Road was about built on the shifting sands of this earth, extracting his identity and his value and his worth from what he knew, from what he had, and what he did. And he, all of that in one moment is taken away. And now who is he? He says, well, I'm not what I am. I'm not what I have. I'm not what I do. I'm now a child of God. And now Paul will spend the rest of his life becoming who he's already declared to be right now in Acts 9. That it's not about who Paul was. It's not even about who he is at that moment. It's all about who he's becoming. Do you see that? That's a man who's forging his identity not from this earth. He's receiving it from heaven. And he's beginning to see himself as God sees him now incorporated into Jesus. And so I think it's a great setup for this is why... Worship team, why don't you come back up? 
So this is our transition, kind of the communion table. I found this 25 years later, the Apostle Paul writes these words, 25 years after the Damascus Road. When I read these few sentences, ask yourself, do you see any dying to the false self and living into his true self, which is hidden with Christ in God? That's the definition of the true self, Colossians 3, your new self and your new ways, that it's your self in Christ. That's your true self. Paul's like discovering something, right? He's got really clear handles on his old ways. Look at this. This is Philippians 3, verse 4 and following, 25 years after the Damascus Road. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. In the language of the series would be, I'm going to build my identity the way I want to build it. And here's how Paul said he used to do it. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That's Paul's old resume right there. He's like, hey, this is how I built my life. This is what I was all about. Do you see that? That's the grounds of his identity right there. In his old ways, old self, all that propped up. And now what he says, verse 7. But what, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. You see that? It's 25 years. Do you think something's changed? No. Paul still got plenty of things to work through. Paul still had a sin nature at that point. Paul still fell on his face and didn't handle everything exactly right. He still was a real person, but he was distinctly different than he was in Acts chapter 9. He was becoming in character who he was already declared to be 25 years ago in identity. And so also for you, and so also for me. And so in just a moment when I dismiss you to the communion tables, the tables are set for you to come and receive. The communion table itself is elements are received. The broken body through the cracker, the shed blood through the juice, you receive the elements. Do you see this? And as you receive them, I want you to receive afresh your identity. That you're not what you have. You're not what you do. You're not what others say about you. You're not your history. You're not even the, your current realities. You are a child of God. You are in Christo. This table says, in Christo, you are incorporated, you have union. The act of communion, do you see the physical act of communion is an incorporation theology, like Jesus is being incorporated into your being, you and him, he and you. Do you see that? And so I want you to come as receivers to that. And then just ask the Lord to shift the ground under your feet a little bit and say, Lord, I just want to begin to see myself afresh as you see me. Not in my past, not in all the stuff I've done wrong, but in all the stuff you've done right. Not in all the stuff that's been done to me, but all the stuff that you've done for me. I want to see myself as you see me in Jesus. And so the way we do it around here at Eagle, as you see the tables are set on each side, sensitivity to the current coronavirus challenges in our country. We have adopted new practices at the table today. So you're, what used to be like we tear off bread and dip it in juice, we just thought wisdom, sensitivity to all of that is we have these new little basically self-contained containers. So there's a juice and a cracker and it's all in one. So all you need to do when you go to the table is grab a container and 
head off to your groups. We just kind of gather around in family units or life groups, or you come back to your blue chairs, whatever you want to do. The team will be leading us in song, but just grab that, go there, and then you just peel off the top to get to your cracker and then the juice. I think it's pretty straightforward from there. And then there's um, hand sanitizer stations, um, both areas, and then there's gluten-free tables. So those of you gluten-free folks, the smaller tables are there still set for you as well. We have those. The I think the elements in the containers are not gluten-free, just to be clear. So those of you sensitive to that. But as you come and when you come, you don't need to be a member here. You don't need to be a regular attender here. But the table is set for those who are in Christo. That you've made a decision at some point in your life where you've surrendered and said, I want to I give my heart to Jesus. I want to be a follower of the way. I want to incorporate myself into him. In the language of the church, you've become a Christian. That's what the tables are set for. And if you haven't ever done that, in a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And you can do that right then. You can do that right now. And you can go take communion for the first time. And then the team's going to lead us in song. And then you just spread out around this room and spend some time praying together. And maybe pray into this space of having the grounds of our identity, not be on our history, not be on our current reality, but on our destiny, who we are becoming. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that this table and all that it communicates, Ephesians chapter 1. that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, would pen these words. A man who would say later in his writings of sinners, I'm the worst. The least likely, the least expected, this table is set for all. And we come now to the table as an act of worship and we remember your broken body, your shed blood, that you were beaten and bruised and bloodied and mocked and crucified that you died for us, that you paid the price we could never pay, and then you rose up. Your victory becomes our victory. Your freedom becomes our freedom. And so we go to the tables now to receive afresh from you. Who am I, Lord? Who am I? not what I have, I'm not what I do, I'm not what others say about me. I am a child of God. And I go to the tables and I receive that identity afresh. And if you've never given your heart to Jesus, you just whisper a prayer right now from your chair. You just say, Jesus, save me. Forgive me for all my sin. I want to be adopted. I want Ephesians 1 to be true of me. I want to be incorporated into your family. Make me new. Forgive me. Come into my life. And then help me spend the rest of my life living up to the calling that I've received in you. You just do that right now. Say, Jesus, save me. So, Lord, we worship you in spirit and truth. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.